That was a very kind way of saying that. I, I would say, I hide behind John MacArthur and let him take the flack. <laughs> but it's good to be back here. Uh, we love this church and love the people here. Uh, it's always good to be here, so I don't underestimate the privilege of being here. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 is the theme for this conference. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That is what the theme of this conference refers to, one ambition, to be pleasing to Him, to Christ. And all the messages that you're hearing highlight the essential features of a life that is pleasing to Christ, and great messages so far. When Josh Philpot wrote me and, and gave me my speaking assignment, he said that my theme would be something to do with the idea of simplicity, and my first thought was about the doctrine of divine simplicity, the, the truth that God is not composed of parts. He's one substance. He's not a potpourri of attributes or pieces. And that's true, and unfortunately, it's a controversial doctrine at the moment, even among some good men whom I agree with generally. Uh, and the simplicity of God is a doctrine worth defending. So I would have been happy to take an assignment like that. But as we corresponded, I realized that the simplicity Josh had in mind is what Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 11.3, in fact, you heard this last night in Rick Holland's message. That's the verse where the apostle says, he does not want our minds to be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And uh, there is a deliberate simplicity in living a pure life of devotion to Christ. And I want to show you how that simplicity is portrayed and celebrated in the book of Psalms. Now, you know, there are some in the many voices, I think, in the broad evangelical realm today, even some voices of leadership and influence who will tell you that you can't know the full blessing of God unless you adopt a radical lifestyle like Elijah or John the Baptist. And I want to look at that idea under the bright light of Scripture. So turn with me to Psalm 128. And while you are turning there, uh, let me explain where this psalm fits in the way the psalms are ordered for us. Starting in Psalm 120, going through Psalm 134, what we have is a series of 15 psalms that constitute a book of choruses within the larger Psalter. These are 15 short psalms that were purposely grouped together when the biblical canon was set in order, and that's pretty obvious because all 15 psalms are labeled a song of ascents. And they are the only psalms in Scripture that are labeled that way. So 15 of them put together in a row. This is apparently a kind of portable songbook within the larger book of psalms. And most Old Testament scholars believe that these 15 psalms were choruses that pilgrims would sing on the way to Jerusalem for the annual feast day celebrations. Because no matter where you start from, there is always a long uphill trek just before you get to Jerusalem, a practically a day-long trek if you're coming from, say, Jericho. And so these are songs of ascent, songs for upward stepping, you know. This was not just to pass the time, but these psalms were to prepare their hearts for worship, so that most of these psalms have themes that relate to the gathered worship of God's people. Most of them mention Jerusalem or the temple or Zion. 
And so that is the function that these psalms served. That's why they're short. Some of them, the last few of them, are only three verses long. They're easy to memorize, easy to teach to children, perfect for traveling pilgrims to sing on the journey. And so let's look at Psalm 128, one of these pilgrim psalms. And the theme of this psalm is blessing. And specifically, the psalm describes what God's blessings look like in the context of domestic life. This shows what a God-blessed home life looks like. And it speaks, by the way, to fathers in particular. This would be a good Father's Day text. But the central principle that's given here is applicable to everyone. Psalm 127, just before this, introduces the motif of fatherhood and home life. That's the psalm that says, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And then Psalm 128 stays with this theme of domestic blessing. Here is what a God-blessed family looks like. By the way, the word bless in various forms appears four times. It's in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5. And the verses that don't use any form of the word blessing actually pronounce blessings. So there's not a single verse in this psalm that doesn't include some promise or description or invocation of God's blessing. And that is the focal point of the psalm. It's, it's about the blessedness of a holy family life, a home life, with a particular focus on the father as the spiritual head. Here is what the blessing of God looks like in the context of a holy home. And, and I want you to notice something very carefully. The description of a godly home is anything but radical. This is, in fact, the central lesson of this psalm. I'm going to stress it all the way through. Let me say it like this. What this psalm points to as evidence of the Lord's blessing on a man and his family is simplicity. It's a song about the blessedness of a simple home life, and it celebrates an ordinary lifestyle, a peaceful household untroubled by all the complexities and complications that come with the pursuit of extraordinary wealth or fame or worldly prominence, those things are not the tokens of God's blessing in a person's life. So so don't ever covet, much less pray for, the tokens of material wealth and celebrity that the people of this world are so infatuated with. The Apostle Paul tells us what we should pray for in 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's the pinnacle of a blessed life. And that's what godly living ordinarily looks like. Now, there are exceptions, of course. Elijah hid by a brook and ate food that was brought to him by scavenger birds. Uh, John the Baptist lived in the desert and ate locusts and wild honey. But those are extraordinary callings, even in Scripture. That's never the norm. I know a woman who actually lives in a tent on the street, and she uh, considers herself an open-air evangelist. She is literally homeless by her own choice, and she spends all of her time and resources handing out tracts and sharing the gospel with people on the street, and bless her for that. But if you have the impression that selling all your possessions and living like 
a homeless person would automatically make you a better Christian or make you more worthy of God's favor and blessing, that's wrong. That's not the way to think. The radicalism of an alternative lifestyle is not the model we are called to follow. Monasticism is not a biblical means of attaining sanctification. Godliness is not achieved by breaking taboos or strike, striving to be you know, merely weird and then wearing your weirdness like the broad phylacteries of a radical Pharisee. But true godliness is ordinarily ordinary. The peacefulness and simplicity of a well-ordered life is what Scripture points to and says, this is what you should aim for if you want to be godly. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that people across our culture, it's not just in the evangelical world, but in the culture everywhere, people today have an unusual fascination with all things radical. If you want to sell a product or an idea or a fad, especially if you're selling it to students these days, you have to market your concept as something radical. Even among Christian young people nowadays, there's this unusual fascination with the idea of being radical. I've lost count of how many books over the past decade, or decade and a half actually, have been aimed at young and restless evangelicals with the word radical featured prominently in the title or the, or the cover copy of the book. Radical Reformation, there was Radical Grace, Radical Restoration, Radical Christianity. David Platt wrote a book more than a decade ago that briefly became a bestseller, and his complete title was just that one word, Radical. However, the one that made me shake my head was a book titled The Irresistible Revolution, Living as an Ordinary Radical. And the fact is, for anyone born in the new millennium, that oxymoron actually makes perfect sense because anything radical is now ordinary. You know, we've got drag queen storytellers and everything is radical and it's supposed to be and people love it. In fact, it's not really radical to pose as a radical anymore. The average evangelical today seems to think you know, that if you don't live a lifestyle that is spiritually and politically unorthodox, unconventional, eccentric, and conspicuously radical, then you're not really following Jesus the way you should. And a large part of the idea behind all of that thinking is that Christians are just too conventional, and evangelicals in particular are too straight-laced. So to be a real Christ follower... You need to be radical in your lifestyle and your doctrine and even in your politics. And if you want to be radical by the current definition, it helps if you're, say, an environmentally conscious pacifist who thinks that justice entails government-mandated redistribution of wealth. Because, in other words, what constitutes radical in the current evangelical lexicon is simply imitating the secular world. And let me give you one typical example. Shane Claiborne is a popular author who has, he's kind of hung around the fringes of the evangelical community for two decades now, and he's known for his promotion of radical living. He says he's interested in helping the poor, and he started a movement called, he calls the New Monasticism. And he typically dresses in a burlap-looking hoodie that makes, that he says he makes himself. He, he, he spins the fabric 
and puts it together and makes his own clothes. In fact, the publicity about him always stresses the fact that he makes his own clothes. He used to claim that he makes his entire wardrobe for the whole year every Christmas. And he, he called it, he said, he boasted that what he does is liturgical sewing. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean, but every time I've ever heard him mention any point of doctrine, he always takes an unorthodox position. For example, he calls himself a red-letter Christian, by which he means he doesn't regard all of Scripture as equally authoritative. He wants to reinvent our understanding of the atonement. He wants to redefine our attitude towards gender and change or tone down all of the classical biblical doctrines that don't fit well with postmodern political correctness. And his chief appeal has always been to young evangelicals on the fringe. It's a self-styled radicalism that is supposed to be a kind of advanced sanctification, and many people think of it that way. The new monasticism, it's a fitting name for it, actually. Claiborne says he learned to live this way by spending time in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. Anyway, that's, I think, a fair sample, just one sample of the kinds of things evangelicals typically have in mind when they talk about being radical, as if it's some kind of super spiritual level of sanctification. The cover article for the March 2013 issue of Christianity Today highlighted this movement, young churchgoers' tastes for radical ideas and radical living. The cover article was an article titled, Here Come the Radicals, in which they profiled Shane Claiborne and several others who teach that the key to genuine Christ-likeness is a lifestyle that is radically at odds with anything that's conventional or conservative. And there's something that greatly troubles me about that whole mentality, because to call something radical is to say that it's extreme or that it's a significant departure from everything that is simple and ordinary and customary and conventional. Now, I want to be fair, because there is a true sense in which the life and teachings of Christ were a deliberate rebuke to the legalistic and extra-biblical traditions of the Pharisees. You could say he was radical in a limited sense, and he also made many demands on his disciples that have a distinctively radical look and feel to them. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10, 35 through 38, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Or Jesus to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 21, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. And all that sounds pretty radical, right? I mean, you might think that Jesus is actually contradicting what I said just a few minutes ago, that you don't have to live in poverty in order to be a great Christian. But you understand, I hope, that when Jesus says we need to hate our parents and forsake everything and take up our cross and follow him, he is speaking figuratively, because Literally hating your parents would be a violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. 
literally carrying a cross around would, would be an impediment to most callings. Jesus was not advocating a freak lifestyle. He was instructing his followers on how their affections were to be ordered. That's what all of those texts mean. He was demanding to be first in our love and our loyalty. He was challenging the hypocrisy of the rich young ruler. He wasn't saying that if, if you and me don't literally abandon all of our possessions and live like a homeless person, that we're not being radical enough. That wasn't his point. So let me be clear. It's, it's quite true that the gospel makes some shocking and unsettling demands on us and that the faithful Christian needs to think in a way that is markedly different and live in a way that sets us far apart from the way that typical worldling would live and think. There is a sense in which true Christianity is radical in its repudiation of worldly and self-centered values. Christ's disciples are not supposed to float along with the current of worldly culture. And in that sense, we are called to, be, uh, to, to live a radically different lifestyle. But if you take your notion of what radically different lifestyle is supposed to look like, if you take that from certain irresponsible teachers, if, if you think you have to wear conspicuous badges advertising your radical nonconformity and, and live in utter poverty in order to be truly pious, you have a skewed view of what faithfulness to Christ entails, what God calls us to. Can I say it like this? It is our worldview and values and affections that are supposed to be radically different from the world, not that we should aim to shock traditional church people by the way we dress and behave. According to this psalm, the labor of the home life of the ordinary believer, these things are not supposed to be radical. Our labor, our home life, uh, how, we, how we organize our family, simplicity is what epitomizes godly living. While the blessings God promises are extraordinary in the joy and pleasure that they bring, God's most sublime blessings are anything but radical. And the fact is, some of the best and most faithful, most God-blessed Christians are simple lay people who live quiet lives and glorify God and in the home and in the workplace, they consistently keep the faith over a whole lifetime of unpretentious and often unnoticed faithfulness. They quietly do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And that is what true piety ordinarily looks like. And don't let anyone disparage or depreciate that truth. That kind of simple, ordinary piety is precisely what our psalm celebrates. This is the Old Testament description of someone who loses his life in order to find it. Luther loved this psalm because it proved that fruitful marriage rather than mandatory celibacy is what Scripture points to as the epitome of divine blessing. And I love it for a similar reason. It debunks the silly quasi-monastical notion that living weird is the only way to obtain the blessing of God on your life. So here's the psalm. I'll read it. A song of ascents. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who work, walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed you will be and how well it will be for you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house. 
your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be who fears Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, before we get into the meat of this text, notice a few facts on the face of this passage. The first thing that jumps out at me is a paradox, because the opening note is fear, and the final note is peace. And in fact, this psalm is full of surprises and paradoxes like that. Fear is what begets true happiness, specifically fear of the Lord. Fear sounds negative, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the very essence of faith. And it turns out that God's blessing looks nothing at all like the world's notion of happiness and self-fulfillment. To the typical worldling, you know, happiness consists of a life that's full of leisure and material riches and power and honor and fame, and it's all a very self-centered, self-indulgent idea. But Scripture gives a completely different view of the blessed life. It's telling us that life's greatest blessings are simple and more ordinary than fame and fabulous wealth. And furthermore, real blessedness will focus our hearts on others, not on ourselves. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And the kind of blessedness Scripture describes is actually, turns out to be a richer, fuller, happier, and generally longer life. And that's what this psalm is celebrating. Pay attention to the key words, especially the opening words of the psalm proper after the inscription. How blessed, how blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh. Now, the word blessed or blessed in Scripture is used at least four ways in the Old Testament. Sometimes it is used to describe the verbal pronouncement of a blessing. All of Deuteronomy 33 is the record of Moses' final words to the nation of Israel before Moses died, and it is a formal proclamation of blessing. He blessed them, Deuteronomy 33.1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And then the rest of that chapter is a record of specific blessings that Moses pronounced on the Israelites. And we use the word in that sense when we refer to the prayer before our meals as a blessing. Bless the foods. Scripture uses the expression in that same sense as well. Luke 24, 30, he took the bread and blessed it. And after breaking it, he was giving it to them. Now, other times the word blessed refers... Uh, to honoring God. It's used with regard to giving God honor. 1 Samuel 25, 32, David said to Abigail, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. That is an expression of praise, actually, and and it means let God be glorified. Blessed be God. Let him be glorified. To bless God is to exalt him, to magnify his name, to honor him with praise, Psalm 41, 13, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. A third way that the word blessed is used is in reference to sacred things. Genesis 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work. And in that sense, the the word blessed denotes something that is hallowed or consecrated, set apart as holy and shown some special kind of honor or favor in Deuteronomy 33:13, where 
Moses is blessing the nation, you read this, of Joseph, Moses said, blessed of Yahweh be his land. So he blessed his land in particular. Not only did that signify the abundant fruitfulness of the land, it made Joseph's portion a kind of hallowed ground. But the word blessed in its common usage and in the way we see it used here in this psalm, blessedness is practically a synonym for happiness and good fortune. It refers to the joyous and favored state of a person whose sin has been forgiven and to whom Christ's righteousness has been imputed by faith. In the words of Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. So that's the very definition of what it means to be a blessed person, to have your sins forgiven and to be covered with the pure righteousness of Christ. Such a person is at peace. He has peace with God. All things work together for his good. He's truly blessed in every sense. And this psalm celebrates three specific blessings that belong to that person who fears God. One we'll call productivity. His life and his labors are fruitful. Verse 2, he eats of the labors of his hands. Verse 3, his wife is fruitful. Verse 5 speaks of prosperity. That's one of God's blessings on his life, productivity. A second blessing is his progeny. Verse 3, his children are like olive shoots, which signifies that they are not only numerous, but they're also full of life and potential. And then verse 6 mentions his grandchildren, the very best of all God's blessings. And blessing number three is peace. There is a a calm and a deep tranquility that permeates every line of this psalm. Verse 2, how blessed will you be and how well it will be for you. And the psalm closes with a pronouncement of the blessing of peace, peace be upon Israel. So three distinct blessings. Keep them in mind because we'll come back to them. But now consider the structure of the psalm. There are two stanzas here, and each stanza celebrates those same three blessings from a different perspective. So stanza one consists of the first three verses, one through three. Stanza two comprises verses four through six. And so these stanzas are roughly equal in both length and logic. They highlight the same types of blessings, and they follow a similar pattern. And so notice the pattern. The opening line states a truth in third person. Stanza 1 opens with, how blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh who walks in his ways. And the first line of stanza 2, verse 4, is, behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. Those are parallel statements. And notice, in both cases, the psalmist is speaking in the third person. And if you've forgotten your basic grammar, first person is me, second person is you, third person is him or her. So he's talking about the man, someone, anyone who, who fears God. Each of these stanzas starts with a line that's spoken in third person, but then it immediately shifts to second person. Did you notice the shift? Look at verses 1 and 2. How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in his way, when you shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands, how blessed will you be and how well it will be for you. And then the rest of that stanza is entirely in the second person. Stanza 2, same thing, starts with verse 4 which goes back to third person. Behold, for thus shall the man be 
Blessed who fears Yahweh, but then, shifting to second person, may Yahweh bless you from Zion that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And then the remainder of stanza two remains in the second person, which makes this psalm intensely personal. It, it, what it does is state a truism in third person, which is true about everybody, emphasizing the widespread application of the principle that's being stated, and then it shifts to second person so that you cannot hear this psalm without examining yourself. You can't sing it without pronouncing a blessing on your immediate neighbor. And in fact, notice, I call the principle of this psalm a truism. It's not a promise. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, that the, the blessings described in this psalm are not universal absolutes uh, uh, or ironclad guarantees, because there are God-blessed people who never marry and have children. The Apostle Paul was an example of one such saint. If he had ever been married, he was a widower by the time we meet him in Scripture, and, and the only children he ever had were true sons and daughters in the faith, like Timothy and Titus and the believers in Thessalonica and Philippi and those other churches to whom he was their spiritual father. But it's also not universally true that godly living always results in a long life or material prosperity. That is a general truism, but it isn't universally true. Hebrews 11 celebrates the faith and the blessedness of countless known and unknown saints in the Old Testament who, it says, experienced mockings and floggings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Now, God could call any of us to that kind of early martyrdom, and we need to be prepared to give our lives for Christ if we're called upon to do that. We are supposed to rejoice whenever we suffer for Christ's sake. Matthew 5:11, Jesus said, "Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me." So there's a different kind of blessing than our psalm celebrates and it's just as much of a blessing. But we're never instructed to seek martyrdom or persecution, but quite the opposite. We are told already referred to it in 1 Timothy 2, we're told to pray for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's what we're supposed to pursue. That's what we should aspire to. Martyrdom is certainly a possibility, and some degree of persecution is an absolute certainty. Indeed, as we are told in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but the ideal that we're supposed to pray for and the, the normal way God blesses faithful people, the kind of life we're supposed to seek is a tranquil and quiet life. Simplicity. This psalm is celebrating that reality and it states a truism. It's not intending to make an absolute and universal promise. So like the proverb, train up a child in the way he'll go and and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That is a general truism, but it's not an ironclad guarantee. Or the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that your days may be long. A lot of people honor their parents and don't live long lives. But the point the verse makes is, is not the... It, it's simply that the, the lifestyle of a rebellious young person is not generally conducive to long life. That's what the 
the, the law means. But it's also true that godly people and obedient children do sometimes die young. And so bear in mind, these are guiding principles. They're not guaranteed promises. And one important corollary of that is you can't, you and I cannot judge a, a person's character by his circumstances. Don't, don't mistake the appearance of worldly health or, or material prosperity as sure signs of God's blessing. And conversely, don't imagine that infirmity and adversity or material disadvantage signifies Yahweh's displeasure. That was the mistake, you know, of Job's counselors, right? They thought that his sufferings were proof that God was displeased with him, even though the truth was the exact opposite. So, that's all background to that. Let's look at these two stanzas one at a time. Stanza one, which gives us a perspective from close up. We'll call this the, the close up perspective. Remember, the three kinds of blessings this psalm celebrates are the godly person's productivity, his progeny, and the peace that envelops and shelters him. And the focus here is on one very specific scene in the domestic environment. We're given a picture from the present, centered on the family table. And the food on the table, verse 2, is the fruit of his labors. The people around the table are his wife and his children. And the atmosphere is one of peace, verse 2. It is well with this family. So why is this family so blessed? Verse 1, this is a man who fears Yahweh, who walks in his ways. He has a healthy reverence for God, and a holy fear of God's displeasure, and that fear is reflected in his daily walk, which tells us he has tapped into biblical wisdom because, as Psalm 111 verse 10 and Proverbs 9 verse 10 both say, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of Yahweh is the discipline leading to wisdom. And in the words of Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, we don't hear enough about holy fear these days. Modern preachers like to encourage familiarity rather than fear of God. And that's why I think so much of today's worship becomes casual and flippant and so man-centered. But Scripture is full of admonitions to fear Yahweh. And for many today, that's an unfamiliar concept. I spent the larger portion of my childhood in Sunday school classes in a liberal church where we were encouraged to think of God as a benign buddy who winks at sin and who's really too nice to ever seek righteous retribution for anything. And I remember as a child being shocked the first time I heard someone describe a person as a God-fearing man. As I recall, I read that phrase, I'll confess to you, I read that phrase when I was about 11 years old in an issue of Mad Magazine. And I thought it had a really bad sound to it, a God-fearing person. I remember thinking, God is not to be feared. That's what I had always been taught in Sunday school. And of course, that contradicts what the Bible actually says, Hebrews 10.31. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And thankfully, when I was 17, reading Scripture for myself, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my own guilt and awakened a genuine fear of God in my soul. And that was the beginning of wisdom for me. And even now, when I sometimes 
do stupid or sinful things, the root problem underlying that is a deficiency in my thinking about God, not taking him seriously enough. In short, not fearing him the way I should. And the Psalms are full of verses like this that speak of the necessary link between blessedness and the simple fear of God. Psalm 112 starts off with this. How blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 115, 13. Yahweh will bless those who fear him, the small together with the great. Psalm 147, verse 11. Yahweh is pleased with those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Notice how fear is often set against loving kindness or our delight in God's commandments. So this is not a craven fear. It's a, it's a genuine fear, a terror, as Scripture says, and yet it's a reverent kind of fear, not the craven sort of fear that makes you avoid God, but the fear that makes you fear offending Him. And this man's fear of God sets the example for his whole family. He has his household in order. From the description of his home life, it's clear that his wife likewise honors the Lord in her life, and because their children are such a blessing, it's clear that they, these kids are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as well. And that certainly describes a lifestyle that is countercultural in our generation. And sadly, I think families like that were pretty rare even throughout much of the Old Testament. But again, this is not meaning to describe a, a radical lifestyle in the sense of being marked with uh, emblems of rebellion or breaking of taboos. But this is what God's ordinary blessings look like. Some of the most basic and yet some of the finest earthly blessings of all are the fruits of our own labor. Verse 2, you shall eat of the fruits of the labor of your hands. And notice that presupposes labor on the part of the person who is receiving the Lord's blessing. If you're able but not working, then you don't really fear the Lord and you can't expect God's blessing on your life because 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says if anyone is not willing to work, he shouldn't even eat. And Proverbs 23.34 says that if you're a sluggard, poverty will come upon you like a robber and your want will come on you like an armed man. So productivity is a blessing of God that is reserved for everyone who fears Yahweh and walks in His ways, and that means work not idleness, not computer games, unless that's your job, I suppose. But this man's wife is also fruitful. This is not primarily, I think, a, a reference to childbearing, though you can't exclude that. But it likens her to a vine, which is an image that evokes beauty and shelter as well as abundant fruit. And her fruitfulness is reflected not only, and maybe not even primarily, in childbearing, but in everything she does. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. She's a worker at home. Verse 3, she's like a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of your house, not out in the, in, in the world, away from her family. She's in the midst of it. That's where she works. Vines don't move about and meander from place to place. They are permanently rooted and the place where this woman set down her roots is her own home. She's not a gadabout. And like a well-cultivated grapevine, she makes the home a place of beauty and shelter. And the blessings of such a life are only multiplied through the children, which carries on a theme here that was highlighted in 
the previous Psalm, Psalm 127, where it says, you know, children are an inheritance of Yahweh and the fruit of the womb is a reward. That Psalm likens kids to arrows. This one likens them to olive trees. It's maybe a step up, huh? So it's expanding on the thought, and and uh, children are it's saying children are, are not an uh, earned reward given in return for meritorious works that we do, but think about it: they are a divinely bestowed blessing, a gracious blessing above and beyond what we really deserve. Children are never portrayed in Scripture as an unwanted inconvenience or an interruption that disrupts our personal plans or or our professional careers. That's the way selfish people today often suggest. You hear it all the time. But children, according to Scripture, are a token of God's blessing, something of great value and a source of immense joy. And if you see your children in any other light, you're probably going to be a bad parent. Verse 3, your children shall be like olive plants all around your table. Just as the grapevine is an analogy for the wife, olive shoots are the illustration of children, so, meaning that they are, they're young, they're full of life and potential. They need only the right care and cultivation in order to become fruitful. And an olive tree, especially in that culture, it still is actually a valuable commodity. The oil of an olive tree was one of the staples of life in biblical cultures. We used to have an olive tree in our backyard when we first moved to California, and I I love olives of all kinds, and that tree in our yard had a spectacular trunk. But I am terribly allergic to olive blossoms, and so I would always prune that olive tree severely about the time it began to bud. And olive trees are amazingly hardy, and when you prune the top branches, these dozens of little shoots would come up from the base around the trunk, right on the ground. And they were fast growing, they were instantly green and leafy, and they were tied into the same root system as that main trunk. That is how olive trees refresh and perpetuate their own vitality, because that's how they grow, and they live for ages. I've visited Gethsemane, and there is an olive grove there that actually dates back to the time of Christ. There are these great ancient tree trunks, some of which must have been just shoots when Jesus was praying in that garden. And the underlying root system is even older than that. And that's the idea of the text here. This man's progeny signify that his name and his influence will endure long after his earthly life has ended. The kids are full of promise and potential. They are a living reason for him to bless God and thank him for his abundant blessings. The picture of this man's blessedness is not radical in the sense that that word is bandied about today, but a life like this is singular, and it's all too unusual, and it's profoundly exalted in the, in the sight of God, endowed with the kind of good fortune that this world values far too little. But this kind of domestic happiness is the focal point of this, this whole, whole psalm. It's the perfect picture of peace, verse 2. How blessed you will be and how well it will be for you. So peace, that's the third of the blessings. There you have the short-range, close-up, present-tense perspective of a God-blessed life. This man's productivity, his progeny, and his peace are all blessings that money cannot buy. They are unique blessings 
from the hand of God, and they are singularly reserved for those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Now, someone might ask, yeah, but don't, don't unbelievers sometimes share in these blessings? Couldn't this same description apply to a Mormon family or even some Hindu households? And that's true in a superficial way, perhaps. Tables filled with food, surrounded by children, graced with domestic happiness. These are still true gifts from God. These things are common grace gifts in the sense that they are sometimes enjoyed even by the wicked, unbelievers. But here's the difference. Unredeemed people typically see such gifts as symbols of their own noble majesty. The blessings even become a temptation to pride. But to the righteous person, blessings like these represent tokens of God's eternal grace. These are not rewards that we have earned. These are superabundant blessings to remind us of God's favor, that it's totally undeserved, but it's also freely given to repentant sinners, those who fear God. In Genesis 33, verse 5, when Esau encountered Jacob after years of living in exile, Esau said, who are these with you? And Jacob answered, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Gracious gifts. They are living tokens of God's grace, not emblems of my own goodness and greatness, but visible proof of God's glorious grace. And I'm reminded of this every time I look at my my children. They're not children anymore. They're all adults, three grown sons who all love the Lord and serve Him all together in our church. And people ask me, how did you do that? And my answer is, I didn't. I wasn't much of a, I wasn't the best father. I'll grant you that. But God is gracious, and He was gracious to our family. Now, look at the second stanza. Remember, stanza one gives us a perspective of this blessedness from close up. Stanza two gives us a wide-angle, long-range perspective. And it starts here with verse four and goes right back to the thought of verse one, a pronouncement of blessing on the God-fearing man in the third person. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears Yahweh. And then in the next verse, it shifts again into second person. May Yahweh bless you from Zion. Zion was the destination of the pilgrims who sang this chorus and they aren't there yet, but while they are singing, but this, this stanza invokes future blessings that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And this, again, is the, the blessing of productivity. But this time, what the psalmist has in view is not the productivity of a single family, but the prosperity of an entire nation. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem for all the days of your life. By the way, the word prosperity here in our text speaks of the biblical concept of divine blessing, spiritual affluence. It's not about material sufficiency. That kind of prosperity has nothing whatsoever to do with the the worldly idea of mammon. What this psalm is talking about is not money or material prosperity, at least not primarily. You know, the world's idea of prosperity is overabundance and opulence, luxury, self-indulgence, and all of it is dependent on material wealth. The Lord's definition of prosperity, by contrast, is full of things like free forgiveness, 
the imputation of perfect righteousness, grace to help in time of need, all the blessings that God gives us that are of eternal value. That's the true prosperity, and that's what this is talking about. And sometimes the Lord's supply of grace to us may seem meager, but it's always sufficient. He measures his blessings carefully so that a glut of earthly prosperity doesn't extinguish our hope of heaven. And even that is a great blessing. Don't be envious of the wealthy wicked. Earthly wealth is the only kind of prosperity they're ever going to know. And that is an eternal tragedy. But what's expressed in that final phrase of verse 5 is a wish to see the Lord's goodness as a covering over all of Jerusalem. And what would that chiefly look like? It's the same blessings we were singing about in verses 1 through 3. Domestic happiness, the prospect of a bright future embodied in our children and sufficient food and shelter for each day. Again, none of that is anything we would ever think of as radical. And yet, still taking the long look, verse 6, indeed, may you see your children's children. Again, as, as great a blessing as children are, and they are great, grandchildren are even better. These are the third generation of one's progeny, and to be able to see them signifies the blessing of a long life. To live long enough to see your grandchildren is the very pinnacle of earthly blessing. And I love that because it perfectly describes my own experience. I'm turning 70 this year, and nothing in all of my life brings me more joy and pure delight than my grandchildren. I get to enjoy them and be entertained by them and delight with them in their games and stuff with grandfatherly love and joy. I can say yes to them all the time. (laughs) And when they need to be told no, and they do sometimes, or disciplined for their misbehavior, they even need that sometimes, I just hand them back to their parents. Again, grandchildren are the very best of earthly blessings. That's the one thing that makes old age and the pain and inconvenience and loss of personal dignity that goes with getting old. Proverbs 17, verse 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of an old man. And I'm an old man with a great crown. Savor them. And so again, the psalmist celebrates the productivity of the righteous, their progeny, And then he closes with a pronouncement of peace upon them. Peace be upon Israel. That was also the closing line of Psalm 125. And it's the perfect final note for any pilgrim psalm. It's a prayer for the whole nation. And if you want to see the prophetic fulfillment of this prayer, just we can't do it right now, but go and read Zechariah chapter 8, which one commentator says it's like like a commentary on this psalm where In the millennium, the Lord fulfills all of these prayers. Now, let me close with two practical observations that come straight from the theme of this psalm. Notice, first of all, that the biblical description of divine blessing and true prosperity focuses on people, not property. This man's best riches are his wife, his children, and his children's children, and they are all worth more to him than all the material wealth in the world, and he enjoys them in that light. That's an important perspective, especially if you're feeling the pinch of financial resources. And second, don't miss the big picture lesson of this psalm. If you want to have a God-blessed life, it is simple. 
fear him. Repent of your sin, trust in his grace. That and that alone will ensure God's blessing on your life. One of Satan's favorite lies is the falsehood that sin will make your life easier or better or more pleasant or whatever. You know, stealing is a shortcut to prosperity. Lasciviousness is more pleasing than marital fidelity. The way of righteousness is arduous and severe, but the path of sin is supposed to be relaxed and easy. Obedience is burdensome and demanding, but sin offers a simple shortcut to the easy life. Forbidden fruit is a an unfair and unloving restriction, and it will keep you in a cloud of ignorance. So eat the forbidden fruit, and your eyes will be truly opened. Those are all lies. Sin is what makes life hard, not faithfulness. Evil is always full of cruelty. Sin enslaves the sinner and exacts a price no one can ever pay in full. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There is no more difficult way to live than constantly going against the grain of divine righteousness. But God is gracious. He himself paid the price of sin in the person of Jesus Christ, and he will forgive the sins of those who turn to him in repentant faith. He'll raise them up. He'll set their feet on a rock. He'll cover their guilt with the perfect righteousness of Christ. He'll grant them eternal life freely. And from the very moment they believe, he will bless their lives with these gracious gifts that surpass all of the material riches of the universe. doesn't mean all your problems will go away, but it does mean you can live a life that's blessed by God. And that's what this psalm celebrates. And it, it is the birthright and the everlasting privilege of everyone who trusts Christ. Jesus himself made this promise, he who comes to me will never hunger, And he who believes in me will never thirst. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. Let's pray. Father, so many of your best blessings are unappreciated by us. Help us to see our lives and your grace in a more biblical light. Satisfy us with your goodness in whatever form your blessings come. And keep us longing for the perfect bliss of heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.